Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The film, let's see if you've been won over, so to speak. Over the last week, we have had a ton of happy talk around the potential for a trade deal. We now understand from the president that the March 1st deadline is something that he would be inclined to let slide if they are close to a deal. Do you assume we have made some progress on the trade front over the last month? Undoubtedly, yes. Uh, I think the more positive noises have some foundation in, in reality. Trump wouldn't be saying... Uh, what he is saying, if he didn't believe that he uh, he could indeed push out the March 1 deadline. And that is has to be good news. The problem isn't solved yet. Right? There are really quite intractable issues having to do with tech, having to do with yeah. the Chinese changing their economic model, right? which is uh, something that is uh, really not going to well, happen. How do you frame this for clients way. at the moment, Willem? Do you just tell them to assume that this is going to continue for decades, that this isn't going to stop? Yes, this is my view. Um, that the relationship, the trade relationship between uh, the US and China is part of a wider uh, right. strategic, global, um, uh, new Cold War. Yes. Well, you were brilliant enough to bring in Catherine Mann, who owns the concept of dysfunction and the codependency of these two trading giants. Yeah. I mean, she has the high ground on that concept. Is that what you see, or do you agree with your colleague Catherine Mann that it is a codependency of international trade? Very much so. Yes, the two elephants uh, in well, two and a half elephants, if we count the uh, euro area as the half. Uh, in, in international trade, um, they are, China and the U.S. do have uh, opposite ambitions for regional and uh, global So then dominance. don't the Chinese outweigh this president? That's their, isn't that their, their greatest probabilistic outcome is simply to outweigh, uh, outweigh Donald Trump? Yes, but that may be another six years, right? So uh, I wouldn't... Uh, think that this is really uh, their strategy. They want okay. this issue to be settled. They yeah. don't want another two years even of uh, open trade warfare, which has really been damaging uh, Chinese business confidence. Marty, as you know, in leadership, one of the toughest decisions you have is not who to please, but who to disappoint. And I just wonder at the end of this week, it was really interesting listening to the president at one of the recent rallies this week when he mentioned cutting oh, a deal with China. The crowd went silent. There was no cheering about cutting a deal with China. I imagine Ambassador Lighthizer, if he doesn't get the kind of deal that he really wants, he's going to be disappointed. If you listen to some of the hosts of some particular news shows here in the United States, they don't seem impressed at the prospect of a deal on border security either, at least not the, board, the deal on the table, Marty. How many people are going to be upset in the next couple of weeks and who is going to be upset? Well, I uh, actually, I think the the commentary around uh, Trump's base uh, on the conservative media side is mixed. Uh, Rush Limbaugh last night gave a kind of uh, tacit approval for this 
uh, strategy of declaring an emergency action and signing this bill. So I, I actually think that Donald Trump can do no wrong to his core, Yeah, well, this is critical, Marty. Base, right? uh, Marty, I'm glad you bring this up. So the basic theme right now for the conservatives is they're going to get one to two billion dollars of funding. Right. He's going to do a national emergency and overlay on top of that. Does, right. does your team in Washington have a working number of what that overlay is? No. And in fact, we're trying to figure it out uh, in terms of what exact what kind of money he's moving around there, members of Congress has have warned him against using military funds uh, that were earmarked for other things. But there, there are various ideas, uh, Dick, Mo, right. uh, 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 about where they can get those funds and would not represent some sort of dangerous precedent. Did you see the, uh, the Senator Cruz proposal? Oh, no, I missed this, oh, it's please. fantastic. Um, when you seize the $14 billion from El Chapo, um, when right. it's convicted, there you, was can, also you a, can then use the money for border security. There Marty. was an interesting <laughs> idea being floated right. around that Credit Suisse still owes a fine for, right. uh, and so it would be the Swiss, uh, the the French who would be building the wall rather oh, than that, the Mexicans. Oh, I like that idea. Yeah. We'll just keep this up. Okay. Well, I look forward to having you back. Phil and Bowder with us. We've got lots to talk about, and certainly this new theme in America of some form of socialism uh, coming into the debate as well, at least according to the critics of uh, the liberals. George Gonzalez with you. What you need to know is Mr. Gonzalez writes it up at Nomura, had a full faith and credit U.S. strategy for Nomura. And what's really important about Gonzalez is his research note synthesizes in all of Nomura fixed income research worldwide. George, I'm going to give you an open question before John jumps on you. Give us your observation on the new disinflation. What would you write about this morning? Look, we, we've been uh, struggling with it for, for many years. Hey, good morning, guys. And, uh, and I think I, there was a period in time where, you know, there was hope, you know, sprung internal all throughout the last, really call it 15 months, post the the, the, the tax deal and all throughout 18. And there are really hopes of inflation coming. And you know, wage inflation have slightly improved, but, you know, really having a hard time you know, working its way into the broader economy. And, you know, we're, I think markets are really struggling with, are we going to go back to the secular stagnation world that we were you know, desperately trying to break free from in the last you know, year and a half? And are we? Look, that's really the uh, multi-trillion-dollar question, considering the, the sort of deficits that we're running. Because you know, given you know, given the sort of you know uh, number, numbers being printed out of the DC, at some point you would think inflation would, would actually kick in. But you know, we're also running huge debt loads as well, and I think that eventually becomes counterproductive for growth. So, George, what I'm interested in right now is the divergence potentially that could evolve and materialize in the coming months between Europe and the United States. Very slowly, that spread between the German and U.S. 10-year is starting to grind out wider. 256 basis points, the U.S. over 10-year bonds. Are you anticipating that to drift higher in the coming months as we start to appreciate a little bit more that Europe really isn't looking good and the policy response is incredible? Look, I think there's scope for us to kind of go a little bit wider, maybe even break what we saw. But to to make something sustainable really requires the U.S. to to find a new area of growth. And considering that we we, we too are also slightly decelerating, and the Fed is also trying to desperately you know, achieve a soft landing with the U.S. economy at, at at a time where the rest of the world is slowing. I, I really think that you know the highs in rates probably took place last year. 
George, something that keeps coming up again and again on the soft landing question is this period of time in the mid-90s. How useful is it to take a framework, a period of time for history gone by and apply it to where we're at right now? It's convenient, and we all do it, <laughs> let's be honest. And I think we, what we would, we'd like to uh, draw parallels to the past because it gives us comfort into, into what may lie in the future, but the future is uncertain. And I think it, it is dangerous to kind of make yeah. parallels, especially to the 1990s. The 1990s, we had a huge productivity boom uh, with disinflationary from the good side, but it led to super, you know, super strong growth. And I'm just not sure we're going to get the same thing. You know, obviously, there's yeah. AI is taking, taking a bigger piece of it. And, Maybe we'll have space for us, but other than that, I really have a hard time seeing where it's coming from. George Gonkovas, we've walked away from the spread market. Two's 10 spread is a vanilla spread. Difference in yield between the 10-year and the two-year because it's been boring, but it's never boring. What part of the spread market do you get the most information from right now? I think the the bigger, you have to really spread your horizons. How, how about that? I love that. Gotta really, a voice for radio, for, too. we got to go for two's 30s. You get to go as far as you can to get the full kind of perspective of what's happening with long-term rates. Because although we haven't seen the the, nat- the natural form of term premium coming in, the curve has stayed steep throughout this period. Meanwhile, the dollar is strengthened, and, it, and it's giving us somewhat conflicting messages. If the bond market is nervous about a downturn, but the 30-year bond market, the 30-year rate is not participating, but the dollar is, and, and we have short-term rates higher, it's creating this weird you know, schism down the middle of right. you know, what really is the yield curve. How does that unwind? This is really important, folks, this non-correlation of longer-term 10-year, 30-year yields into dollar dynamics. What happens? Does the bond market catch up with the ascendant dollar, or does it go the other way? Well, I mean, look, we're in the holding pattern with the Fed. I mean, the Fed obviously uh, now has opened the door to potentially cutting rates as well. If, you know, to go back to the 1990s, again, we're not supposed to do those sort of parallel analysis. But the Fed had finished the hike, hiking cycle in 94, 95, and then ended up easing and then staying at a higher plateau. And so it could very well be that you get a few cuts, which, again, the market is actually, actually now pricing to, and that the short rate actually moves more than the 30-year rate. So you're looking for bull steepening. Is that essentially what you're saying, George? I mean, there's, there's going to be potential for bull steepening, uh, and, it, and it, it could be something engineered to kind of elongate this business cycle. What the Fed has done is to buy time. And if we were to see the U.S. slow down more than what's projected and you know, kind of link up with what Europe is yeah, going through, I think they would have to do that. So, George, a question that some people might ask, and I'll ask it on their behalf, to really get some kind of aggressive bull steepener, it will be difficult because of the issuance that is sitting on the front end of the curve just in terms of supply that yeah. comes from the Treasury. How important is the supply dynamic to get that steepness that you think we might be able to have? I think it's, 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 it's easily attainable if the Fed changes its portfolio composition. I think this is really the key thing. They brought up the portfolios now in play, the balance sheet, and if they were to redirect their proceeds from, let's say, mortgages into short-term treasuries, they can help you know, really finance a lot of that short-term paper. So all these things have solutions that they really change their, right. their, their direction. But isn't the ultimate solution what Secretary Geithner mentioned long ago and far away, which is just let time march on? Doesn't time heal all of this balance sheet dynamic? I mean, and it has. And the U.S. is in much better shape if you're, if, you're, if you're referring to the commercial banking system. But it's more that there's mm-hmm. only so much balance sheet to take down as much paper is being produced in the government bond market relative to right. the credit market and relative to mortgages. There's only so much space in the system. And when it happens quick, you, you have dislocations. Are, are you able to make a 10-year call right now? I mean, out 12 months? Or is it just so noisy out there you can't do it? 
I, I can, I can, I think we all do, and that's a part of our job description. Yeah. And, I, and I think, you know, what the key is, what's our confidence level? And um, we obviously have a yeah. forecast. We do think we're going to be, you know, hugging current levels into. We have a, a potential scope to grind higher into the summer because you know, a lot of this negativity should kind of go away in the short run. Right. Markets up, op- markets operate to the short run, but in the long run, without inflation, with the rest of the world slowing. We're going to be, you know, stuck in the range and heading back down. Fascinating. George, thanks for the briefing. George Concalves at Nomura. Just greatly appreciate that. Special topic in his latest note, QT caps taper scenarios. Uh, A smart uh, note on the balance sheet as well. Joining us now, Laura Laura, Davidson, who's expert on the most important thing to our listeners in the world, not the shutdown, not Brexit. Laura, state and local tax deduction. This is a huge deal, isn't it? This is incredibly huge. And people, as they are filling out their tax returns and sending them out to the IRS this this week, this month, are realizing just how bad it is. You know, you're hearing from people that they're... But seeing they're getting a much smaller refund or they're they're finding that they're paying a lot more in taxes. Oh, really? Uh, so no, 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 no. It's not you're not I'm not getting a refund at all and paying for the first time in years. Yes, that's what that's because of biscuits deduction. Laura, continue on the, the, the uproar over this. Are they going to change the rule? That's what everybody wants to know. Well, so last week, President Trump said he was open to changing it. And this was really a shock to, to most people because uh, it was sort of settled back when they did the tax overhaul a couple of years ago. Um, and, and, and be clear that, that right after Trump said that, uh, Senate Republicans sent out a statement saying, nope, we're not reopening this issue. We're not relitigating it. So the chance of there being yeah. some congressional change real soon is, uh, is not, uh, not looking likely. However, uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo went down, met with the president yesterday, he made his case. Afterwards, okay. Trump said, you know, I listened to him. Look how, you know, this is a nice okay. show of bipartisanship, but thanks for coming. Translate this from the Senate Majority Leader's Kentucky over to those evil leftist commies up in New York. I mean, that's really all this is about is politics and geography, isn't it? It's, it's true, because whether you're a Republican or Democrat, if you are in New York, New Jersey, uh, there's no de- uh, Republicans in Connecticut, at least at the national level, or you know in California, uh, you really care about this issue. But you see a lot of the Republicans who cared about this lost their seats last November, so they're no longer in Congress. So there's not as many Republicans whispering uh-huh. into Trump's ear saying, "Hey, we need to fix this." It's really just Democrats in wanna, the Northeast. You want to jump in on this? Jennifer? I would love to Please? jump in Please? and ask a question. Please? Thank you. I remember Please. when I moved over here and I called the accountant. And he, <laughs> And I thought, well, it's America, so this is going to be a low-tax situation. I'm oh, looking, yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking forward, I'm looking forward to, to leaving Europe. And then I got told, well, well I gave a state you your tax, term. there's I owe, a city tax, I owe there's a federal much, tax, yeah. then there's another tax. Ah. Well, you don't pay property taxes. That's well, a, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Thank Combine goodness that, that with a state income tax. I had no idea how many taxes it. there were until... Oh, you didn't? And, Why didn't you ask Ms. Davison a question? Well, Laura, I want to ask about buybacks, actually, because... There are some senators that are talking about how they can curb buybacks, loads of them on the Democrat side. Then we heard from Senator Rubio, who essentially is looking to end the tax incentives for buybacks. What's on the table here and what's likely to happen? So what Rubio has laid out is a very, very loose proposal that would basically equalize the treatment for companies, whether they um, you know, issue dividends or buyback stock. We saw after the, the tax rate drops precipitously that corporations very much preferred 
uh, buying back their shares versus um, issuing dividends, or um, in particular, what what Rubio was hoping to see more of of capital investment. That has really faltered. Um, you know, we have about a year of data since uh, since the law passed, and that has not uh, been the driver of economic growth that Republicans were hoping. So Rubio is saying, look, let's uh, you know make it less advantageous for companies to to buy back their stock and instead put that money into growing their business, whether that be research uh, research research cost or um, some sort of equipment, machinery, buildings uh, that will be uh, that that driver for for economic growth. Yeah. Whether or not that is likely to come is this is really a uh, just sort of yeah. uh, one idea out there, and and Rubio is sort of alone on his party on this. Yeah, well, Floor Davidson, thank you for the update. I'm sure we'll inflict more pain as we go to April 15th. If you have an investment account and with a repair that you've had and you can benchmark it back to 2009 or August of 2007, or maybe you can go back farther than that, this is not only the interview of the day, but it's the interview of the week, month, and uh, forever. Lizanne Saunders joins us. She needs no introduction with Schwab. Lizanne, what were you doing December 24th at 12 noon? What were you writing? What were you thinking for Schwab? Well, we, we did uh, do a, a daily uh, report during that era. Uh, Any time that we see the market down uh, more than about 2%, we, we put out a report. Uh, that day, it, there were a, a lot of aspects to it. Uh, technically, sentiment-wise, it suggested we were in some sort of panic selling mode, kind of a crescendo, yeah. um, and that we were likely to see at least a technical lift. I think the jury's still out as to whether that was truly the bottom, and I think the answer to that question will be the length of runway between now and the next recession. I think if a recession is pushed out, that low probably holds for a while. If not, if it's sooner than than I think what consensus believes, then it's more likely we retest those lows. But in the modern day, can you speak to Schwab people the same way you did 5, 8, 10, or X number of years ago in the hyperkinetic media of today how do you handle that versus what you used to do? I think it's a tougher environment right now. You know, Tom, you and I have known each other for a long time, and I think we we generally were on the right side of the story in late 07, and same thing in early 2009. And I'm not, and not that either of those environments were easy, but I think at those times, certainly with the benefit of hindsight, but fortunately for us at that time, I think the the so-called call, which I don't tend to use that word very much, was a little easier than it is right now. I think the the waters are a little bit murkier. Uh, we we sort of at least temporarily uh, solved one of the problems that plagued markets last year with tighter monetary policy and tighter financial conditions. But I, 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 even there, I think the jury is still out as to whether the Fed truly is done. I think there's some chance we could at least in the short term get a little bit of an inflation pickup, given things like NFIB selling prices, that may put the Fed back in a position to have to throw another hike at us. Uh, conversely, uh, Fed is sort of a little bit in a box. We may look back and say, boy, uh, the, the December hike might have been seen as a mistake because, indeed, we were slowing sufficiently enough to move into a recession. I think the big wrinkle, probably the big needle mover to define the length of the runway between now and next recession will be trade. I don't have any greater ability to sort of divine what's going to happen there than anybody else does. Well, well, Lizanne, you said with the Fed on the sidelines, investors are focusing more on fundamentals and when, you know, perhaps the next recession. 
What are you seeing in the earnings here this quarter? And more importantly, you know, 2019, we've seen, uh, we've heard some uh, CEOs fairly conservative in their outlook across various sectors. What's your thoughts about earnings and how earnings can support this market in 2019? Right. So, so fourth quarter, obviously, has been a decent earnings season. The beat rate is only about 70%, which is below what it has been recently. But decent numbers, about 16% growth or so. That's obviously down from the peak growth the prior quarter. But uh, we, we never expected to maintain anything resembling that heading into 2019, simply because of the math of comps. On a, on a tax cut basis. Right now, you've got refinitive consensus estimates down into slight negative territory for the first quarter, and every day they continue to be ratcheted down. So I'm not sure the re-rating down of 2019 estimates encompassing not only uh, trade-related risks, but uh, the lagged effect of tighter monetary policy, the lagged effect of, of the strong dollar last year, and of course, the collapse in oil prices. So I'm not sure we've re-rated it. The question, and the important one is, do analysts ultimately set the bar low enough that when we get into reporting season, they're sufficiently low to allow companies to hurdle it. I do think that there's a, even if it's not a high risk of an earnings recession, there's a greater risk of an earnings recession in the first half of the year than there is an economic recession uh, starting. But what's weird about this year is unlike last year, when the E was accelerating dramatically and the PE was coming down because we were under multiple compression, the opposite has been happening this year. So the E is under pressure, but we've seen a lift in multiples because some of those easing uh, uh, issues from from last year, not least being financial conditions. So, Lizanne, if, if again investors are focusing more on the fundamentals here, do you think the analyst estimates for S and P earnings accurately reflect a lot of the geopolitical issues out there? Whether it's you know China slowing trade talks, uh, European Union slowing Brexit, those types of things, do you think they're adequately uh, captured? Probably not yet. And it was interesting about the re-rating that happened to 2019 estimates. So if you go back to April, which is when you first started seeing consensus estimates for Q1, and then July was when Q2 was brought into the mix, September was when Q3, and then January Q4. So the start point is different, but you've seen a dramatic re-rating across the board. And it kind of happened in in a cycle. You, you first had the re-rating associated with China and the trade war companies exposed there. Then it was the collapse in oil prices and the re-rating that was necessary with energy. And then on some of the exporters tied to the, the dollar, only more recently, I think, has it happened in conjunction with the weakness in, in Europe. So it was like analysts were almost had blinders on and, and sort of bringing estimates down in chunks based on some of those uh, pressures that you, you mentioned. Again, I think in the near term, we probably still have a bit more room to go on the downside. Um, but to your point about some of these risks, this really has impacted soft data more than it has hard data from well, a broad economic standpoint, which means it may not quite be the same impact right. near-term on earnings. What a briefing. Liz Ann Saunders, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. She is with Charles Schwab. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.